I'm Kaylee Arrett, and you are listening to episode four of Me When I'm Free. Who is this me when I'm free? And why does it even matter? This is the question that has spurred me on for years now. It's led me down some dark roads of healing and up joyful mountains of calling. And to this moment, right now, still on the journey and inviting you to join me. If it really is true that the glory of God is man or woman fully alive, then it would appear that God would want this even more than we do. But why? Why is this important to him? Doesn't he have more important things to attend to than whether or not we know ourselves and what we have to bring to the world? These are some of the questions I want us to explore together each week through a simple story, a few moments of reflection, and space to pray. Join me, friend. When I use the phrases true self and false self, as I mentioned in the last episode, what do you think of? Maybe you think about authenticity and imagine the false self as the image that many people like to portray in public or through various social media platforms. It's possible you think about phrases like living your truth resisting the societal norms and expectations that are forced upon you. Or maybe the phrases conjure up feelings of the people and places where you most feel like you can be yourself. While each of these descriptions can play a part in understanding our true self, I'd like to offer a description that sums up what I'm referring to when I use these words. I've learned much of this, not only through my own experience, but also through the writings of some wise people, some of whom I'll mention today and others as we continue on this journey together. Simply put, the false self is created through the deeply entrenched ways we seek to cope apart from dependence on God and his love for us. The true self emerges as we learn to find our identity as one beloved by God. Pete Scazzaro writes in his book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, to define myself as a son immensely loved by God, to find my personal worth in my Abba Father apart from anything I do is revolutionary. Pete goes on to outline three ways that we might seek to define ourselves. Temptation one, I am what I do, or performance. Temptation two, I am what I have, possessions. Temptation three, I am what others think, or popularity. While truthfully, each one of us will struggle with these beliefs from time to time, when we begin to attach to them, to find our worth, that they become a sin pattern, like envy 
or bitterness, cynicism, resentment, lust, self-hatred, gossip, or possibly even patterns that look more presentable, such as striving to be seen as good or successful or even religious. And while it's likely this attachment is developed because of the wounds in our own life, finding our worth in this way pulls us away from dependence on God's love, which is the source of all of our healing. At some point in life, we will discover that the weight of our identity can no longer be held in these flimsy containers. The discovery may come to us in the form of a crisis, a fractured relationship, or a lost job, or an unmet longing, or possibly it will unfold over time as we wrestle with an untold story or a secret addiction, or maybe even the empty promises of wild success. For me, that crisis looked like an untold story of an attachment to what others thought of me. There were a number of untold stories that tumbled out during my counseling sessions. Many of them felt shameful. Some simply felt normal. But as I spoke them out loud, all of them indicated an addiction to the validation of others. What had begun as a legitimate longing for affection had over time become an enslavement, an inability to know who I was apart from the praise of others. What I didn't understand as I told my story was that this act of confession was in itself a step toward my true self. The very parts of myself that I had tucked away as unacceptable were brought to the light, opening my eyes to the understanding that shame does not serve us when it bullies us into hiding. Kurt Thompson reflects further in his book, The Soul of Shame. To relationally confront our shame requires that we risk feeling it on the way to its healing. And all sin, all idolatry, all coping strategies in which I indulge are ways for me to satiate my hunger for relationship, my longing to be known and loved, my desire to be desired. I remember a moment in the counselor's office when I confessed to something that felt humiliating. To some, it might seem harmless, but to me, it represented the depth of my attachment. I held my head down and wept as I shared it with her, gulping back sobs. The shame coursed through my body. When I was done, I lifted my head slowly and locked eyes with her. Tenderly, she said, That was very difficult for you, wasn't it? That was all she needed to say to begin to usher in healing. Her tender words became a healing balm, repairing the rupture that had pushed me toward hiding. 
I realized that all of the energy I had expended in pushing down this unwanted part of me could now instead move me toward truth and healthy connection, meeting the longing that had driven me there in the first place. Henry Cloud writes in his book, Changes That Heal. The Bible teaches two themes throughout. The first is that we are created in the image of God and that we have incredible value. The second is that we are sinful and broken. There is the ideal and there is the real. Both are true and both need to be reconciled into a grace-giving relationship with God and others. This act of reconciling our ideal self and our true self is not easy. Peeling back the layers of our identity by naming our brokenness is hard work. But I learned my first lesson of the beloved in that counseling office. When we slowly and deliberately choose to move toward our shame in grace-giving spaces, rather than running away from it, we will discover the connection we were longing for all along. And so today, friend, I leave you with these questions and some space to reflect. If it's helpful, I invite you to grab a journal to jot these thoughts down and ponder them throughout the week. Question one. Anne Voskamp begins her book, The Broken Way, with a quote from author Paul Miller. The very thing we are afraid of, our brokenness, is the door to the Father's heart. Friend, is there an area of brokenness in you that you are afraid of? I want to invite you to simply name it to yourself. Maybe you find yourself wrestling with this struggle or fear or sin pattern day after day. Or maybe you've never even considered the idea of brokenness and wonder where to even begin. Either way, take a moment to reflect on whatever surfaces during this question. And question two, what would it be like to name that brokenness to Jesus and instead of a shame-filled response, to picture him looking you in the eye with tenderness, saying, that was very difficult for you, wasn't it? Then, would you take a moment to reflect with me and maybe even journal 1 Corinthians 8, 3. But whoever loves God is known by God. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, thank you that you are moved with compassion toward us when we admit our brokenness. May we understand that there is no part of us that is hidden from you, and yet we are deeply and fully loved. It is in your strong name we pray. Amen.
Thanks for listening to this episode of Me When I'm Free. I hope you'll continue to join me on this journey toward wholeness. I'd love a traveling companion. My hope is that you'll see yourself in these stories that I share here. And if nothing else, you'll feel less alone. If you'd like to connect throughout the week, you can find me at Kaylee Errett on Facebook and Instagram or at KayleeArrett.com. And if you haven't yet, I'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast and I'd be delighted if you left a review. Thanks for listening, friend. Let's meet back here next week.